Hello. Uh, good evening. I'm just uh, going to start. There's going to be some more people. My name is Yuan Lund, and I'm a co-director of the IMA, together with Aileen Burns, who's sitting in the first row. Um, we're so excited. We're so delighted to have Patricia Reed here. I feel like Patricia is one of those people that um, kind of have just about every skill you can imagine. She is a great artist, she's a fantastic writer, but she also knows a lot of other stuff like building websites, designing, I, I don't know. I feel always envious when I think of um, Patricia, who's come, no, 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 okay, I want to go on. Um, so um, yeah, Patricia's here with the support of the Australia Council, so uh, thanks for that. And. Um, uh, it's coming to your end of your stay here. You've been here for quite a while, uh, five weeks, I think, and uh, moving on to Sydney to deliver another lecture. So this is Melbourne, is what I say, Melbourne. Um, so another talk, and I think uh, we're so excited because um, uh, I think, I guess today's talk, and I was kind of, I was trying to show this book uh, that uh, is only from 2012, and it's called Intangible Economies, produced by Philip, a Vancouver-based publisher and magazine. And Patricia's like, no, no, don't show it. It's already too old. Like, the field has moved on immensely in the two and a half years since this book was produced. But if you want interested to read something by Patricia, you can, um, or look at her art, you can go to her website. So, um, but just to give you a short biography, um, Recent exhibitions is um, um, uh, Vito curated by um, uh, Shang. Why, why am I blanking here? We'd, um, it's part of the story, which is kind of an immense uh, two-year project uh, going between Singapore, Hong Kong, and Rotterdam, where Vito de Vito is. Um, Patricia made a new work there. It was a very interesting, sprawling exhibition that I think, in some way, I think was always in the back of our mind when we um, started working on imaginary accord. But more than that, um, Patricia has done shows at Kunsthaus Lagenthal, I can't say the German, the German, uh, yeah, I should be doing this better, in Stuttgart, Audien Gallery in Vancouver, um, uh, 0047 in Oslo, among others, and have uh, contributed to, to Philip, to C Magazine, to art papers and uh, um, different books and publications. And, I think tonight's talk will be about, um, well, the t title of the talk is Fiction and, uh, and the Future Interior, and I'm not gonna, I don't even know how to kind of really, um, what to say about that, so I'm just gonna give it over to Patricia to, to, um, to give a talk. So uh, thanks, Johan, for the introduction. Uh, we've known each other for a while now. Um, and I apologize, I'm going to have to read because I'm about as spontaneous as a German bus schedule um, when it gets to theory. So, um, and I just want to give a really heartfelt thanks to Eileen and Johan for hosting me here these past weeks. Uh, as they mentioned, I work as their graphic and web designer. So I do possess some useful skills. Tonight I'll be focusing more on the useless side of things. Um, so it's been really great to be here and work with the team and get a tangible insight of what's in store for the 2015 season that we launched a few weeks ago um, as the IMA slides into the 40th year. Um, so a sincere thanks for being such gregarious hosts with me. <laughs> um, so the title of my talk, as Johan mentioned, is Fiction in the Future Interior. 
Um, it's been prepared in response to one of the emergent conceptual threads that bind Tito Steyrl's uh, Too Much World exhibition that we're currently sitting in, of course. Um, and it binds it to the forthcoming exhibition platform. I'm going to say platform because it's more than just a show. There's a bunch of other things. I won't give it away, but so we'll call it platform. Um, so it relates to that, and it also relates to some of the issues that Zach Blass and Karen Archie, for those of you who were here on Saturday, were alluding to um, in last weekend's mini-symposium. So uh, the link I'd like to explore is not at all particular to art or specific to works in these shows, but maps out a more generic socio-technological reality forged by processes underwritten by fiction, or to paraphrase uh, Steiger herself, when images jump out of the screen and become 4D. So just like the liminal, normative qualities embodied by the internet that came up in our discussion on Saturday, at once an apparatus of unprecedented surveillance, as much as a device facilitating communications between distant bodies and places, so too these fictions are neither good nor bad per se, but are potent currents that seem particularly operational in our early 21st century condition. So I'd like to look at why these fictions turned reality are especially functional in our era. Secondly, how they've come to buttress our way of life. And finally, how an injunction to fictionalize could serve as a generative mode of practice for the constructability of an alternative or alien future beyond the foreseeable one before us, captured by debt bondage, cataclysmic climate change, and exponential inequality. So to be clear from the outset, I'm going to be using the term fiction beyond the more common literary connotations to denote anything that qualifies as a purely semiotic production. So this will include images, concepts, language, and so forth. Basically, any sort of untruthful signifier lacking an existent referent in reality as it is now. The bringing into reality of this type of fiction has been named as hyperstition a term largely propelled by the likes of Nick Land and Sadie Plant in the mid-90s in their speculative philosophical practices. Hyperstition can be described as a cybernetic positive feedback machine, with culture itself being a core constituent element. This is distinct from superstition, which is simply a system of false beliefs, whereas with hyperstition, the existence of an idea, image, or concept operates in a causal way to bring about its own reality. And so before slagging off hyperstition as just another bedfellow of dead-end postmodern subjectivist thought where everything including reality is but a social construct, hyperstition can best be understood as a motor catalyzing epistemic complications for subjects with nonlinear effects. A fiction or image brought into reality through a set of techniques or technology applied to it. As an example of this fiction motor function, we can point to Steyrl's essay by the same title as this very show, where she writes of the Romanian uprising of 1989, where protesters most famously invaded the TV studios, producing broadcast images that did not document or record the situation, but served to catalyze real social events. When images began to walk through the screens, as she says, this is the making real of a semiotic entity whose process goes by the name of hyperstition. <clears throat> With this type of semiotic 
yeah, there we go. With this type of semiotic migration in mind, embodied by the idea of hyperstition, let's first set the ground of our contemporary condition to frame why our era, most notably in the dominant neoliberal democratic states, seems ripe for the construction of fictions. Given the ubiquity of speculation in our current economy, which is essentially a wager on a fictitious future, our actual condition is extremely sensitive to hyperstitional operations, where unsubstantiated rumors can build or destroy market confidence with real consequences. Since the early 70s, our economies have entered a distinctly new phase that one could classify as increasingly self-referential. So like fiction, there's been a dramatic tendency towards the erasure of, real, of a real referent. In this late capitalist phase, marked by the end of the Bretton Woods system in 1971 and the decoupling of the US dollar to gold, to the invention of finance economics marked by the indoctrination of the first academic journal of the field in 1974, to the refunctionalization of currency as an entity for speculation and no longer just a tool of equivalence, to the development of the futures market such tendencies, and just, these are just a few examples that I can actually still understand, appear to exemplify Marx's prophetic turn of phrase called fictitious capital, which was discussed in volume three of Capital written in 1894. Fictitious capital is where value takes on properties beyond what can be realized in the commodity form, so like credits, shares, and debt. And the net value now of a future AKA speculative or fictional cash flow in the future. These self-referential turns in contemporary economics have led many who write under the label of cognitive capitalism to qualify it as entirely linguistic, meaning that like language, it refers to nothing other than itself, just like the recursive logic at work in hyperstition. Our current condition largely governed by the obtuse hyper-object of the financialized economy and positioned as the ultimate political decision machine is precisely why the reclaiming of fiction as a motor for semio-intervention can serve as a crucial technique for action, arguably one more powerful than reflexes of critique, which I'll get to in a few minutes. In pursuing this line of thought, where fictions causally permeate reality as functional objects, it is worth noting that the very pillars this financialized economy stands on stem from hyperstitional operators in their own right. One need only look at the most spectacularly effective revolutions of all, the long-winding and ongoing neoliberal one, to understand the power of fictions and their real consequences. Expanding from the initial Montpellier Society meeting of 39 economists and intellectuals in 1947 to the academic modeling of these ideas in Chicago, authorizing the validity of neoliberal doctrines, the neoliberal revolution was and continues to be an entire ecosystem steadfastly permeating social relations on a global scale. Such utter permeation has been achieved not only through the creation of fictions, but through their circulatory performance via international think tanks, media uptake, and above all, models and equations that have sanctioned once illegal market or trading behavior formally qualified as gambling. 
The self-fulfilling prophecy of financial models, illustrated by Donald McKenzie's analysis of the incorporation of the Black-Scholes-Merton model of efficient pricing upon the development and legitimacy of futures markets, points to the performative requirement, or positive feedback, underpinning the propagation of, in this case, economic fictions. His analysis demonstrates the power of recursivity, where something from the future, the fictitious model, is enacted upon the present and ultimately becomes real. Where models were once thought of representing or capturing a snapshot of complex reality in as neutral a way as possible, this Promethean example demonstrates their force as potential drivers of reality. Why stop at, accurate, at, at trying to accurately predict future markets like a clamor, camera turned clairvoyant when models can be deployed as engines to build it? This hyperstitional analysis prompts a rather unexpected question from a sociologist of finance at the conclusion of his book, namely, what sort of world do we want to see performed? A, a relevant question that I'd just like to kind of hang in the air in adjacency to this uh, statement of uh, Steirl, too much world. What is crucial to extract from this question is not only the necessity of constructing fictions, but the requirement that this fiction be enacted in reality. Such a procedure is nothing less than a reverse time travel in migrating prognostic objects across the threshold of non-reality and performed within the present. Structurally, this sort of reverse time travel from the future to the present, endemic to hyperstition, plays out in the grammar of future anteriority, the enactment of what will have been. This is an important distinction to note since it stands apart from a future that is subordinate to the logic of our actual condition, which would be a mere repetition of the present, like when we initially diagnose the future as captured or as someone would call it cancelled. The enactment of what will have been is not the repetition of the performance of what is or what actually exists as common sense logic. To enact what is is to uphold and perform the existing pillars of epistemic certainty that demarcate a particular world ordering. And this, we can recall, without epistemic turbulence, without a complication to what we think we know to be true, there's no hyperstitional futurity. There's merely the linear march of time that forecloses on other structural possibilities. The enactment of what will have been is the performance of anticipating what could be or ought to be within the terrain of what is, forcing itself into existence and creating new objects of reference as a fruit of its speculative labor. Although much more work needs to be done to better understand how fictions get interpolated and become reality, we can still identify this process as a speculative labor in the affirmative sense. <clears throat> Excuse me. Historically speaking, to speculate is to ponder the future as an imaginative power not to be underestimated. As noted by Uncertain Commons, an anonymous collective of writers, the cognitive potentiality of speculation has absolutely collapsed into the economic realm since the end of the 18th century, where speculation was definitively ripped from the domain of imagination and locked into market predictions. Such a collapse carries a libidinal drive to secure the future along the trajectory of profit, 
that can only succeed by repeating what is, by disavowing as much systemic perturbation as possible to ensure maximal accuracy of predictions. Considering the captured status of the term speculation, uncertain commons have specified it into two categories, affirmative speculation and affirmative speculation. The affirmative mode, in the mode of repeating what is, seeks to pin down, constrain, and enclose the future. Its thrust is to make the future definitive and manageable, embodied most evidently in the proliferation of risk and probability calculus, a mode of doxastic conservatism of confirming what is. Affirmative speculation is also the production of a future, yet it wants to seize upon uncertainty, what could or ought to be, as a driving force outside of repetition. Affirmative speculation is not simply a leap of faith into the unknown, it does not deny conjecture or futural assessments that generate useful data and epistemic advances, but it directly engages the potential of uncertainty without binding it to what is already prefigured. In the speculative labor necessary for hyperstition, the affirmative, the affirmative variant, the fallibility of knowledge is not a glitch or a failure, but is seized as a mode of potentiality for reorienting behavior. Important is that in this hyperstitional system, epistemology does not overdetermine ontology, or to put it more plainly, a system where what is currently known does not constitute the totality of what may exist or what sort of fiction could come into existence. Like the affirmative nature of speculation necessary for hyperstition to institute fiction into the fabric of reality, the principle of hyperstition is, unto itself, an affirmative movement. This is not to say that all modes of hyperstition are good or that affirmation is equal to being positive or anything of that sort. What we mean by affirmation here is that in order for a fiction to qualify as hyperstitional, in order for that image to walk off the screen, there must be a ratification of that image, of that fiction in reality. It is not enough to point to a fiction, to disagree with it, to note its contradictions or injustices and so forth. Something other must become real as a constructible project. It is in this way that hyperstition stands at odds with institutions of critique and the instituting of critique. So although much of what I've just had to say may seem distant from the concerns of art, given the ubiquity and utter imperative imposed on contemporary art to be critical, we can see how hyperstition, with an injunction to fictionalize in verb form, to institute new coordinates of reality, stands as a counterpart. When critique has become more of a badge of hierarchical knowing better, evidenced by often useless quibbles to the neglect of applied ideas, or seems content to stop at the identification of epistemic impasses, systemy logic, or contradictions, it seems only able to operate in the register of the negative. Negativity per se is not the problem. One would need to be a fool to think that the future trajectory as it is, with naive optimism and positivity, but when that neg negativity stops short, can tend to bask in the glow of moral or intellectual superiority at a ceased any real social function, able to define everything it doesn't want or what is bad, but wholly and unimaginably, 
unimaginatively unable to define anything it does want. Bruno Latour has aptly used the image of the wind-up toy to describe critique as having run out of steam. A toy that endlessly repeats the same silly gestures no matter what object it confronts. Or what Reza Negrastani has later called the critical reflex. An automatism of a response like that small medical hammer hitting the sweet spot of your knee. This institution of critique has perhaps taught us well how to diagnose situations, but at the cost of leaving us unimaginatively, un <laughs> at the cost of leaving us imaginatively impoverished to prognosticate what we do want. The predicament these critical reflexes leave us in is the inability to tackle the movement from is to ought, signifying a chasm between knowing and doing, a disavowal of pure knowledge, indicating that tactics of pointing to problems and campaigns of raising attention are no longer, if they ever were, sufficient. As, as a constructive enterprise, hyperstition demands much more because it's contingent on a performative follow-through to teleport the inexistent back into reality as a futural project. It is an ethos, a way of doing that cannot rest on knowing or representing alone, which lies at the root of the very definition of ethics, namely a coupling of knowing with doing. So I'd like to suggest the diagram as an abstract device for the project of hyperstition. To quote the main proponents of hyperstition from the now defunct cybernetic cultural research unit, diagrams, maps, sets of abstract relations, tactical gambits, are as real in a fiction about a fiction about a fiction as they are encountered raw. But subjecting such semiotic contraband to multiple embeddings allows a traffic in materials for decoding dominant reality that would otherwise be proscribed." End quote. Diagrams are a kind of prosthesis of thought allowing for this migration between immaterial and material realms. As vehicles for thought and enactment outside of the containment of what is, they have the potency to organize the construction of fictional horizons in the reconfiguration of reality. Diagrams map out a space of intuition and inference. They project futurity into the space. They not only represent what is, but seek to construct what ought to be. Diagrams are both descriptive and prescriptive, conditioning an effective shareability in a semi-linguistic form that opens up an imaginative and cognitive territory for the acceleration of alter realities. This quality, <clears throat> this quality of affirming a negation, of making something obsolete by, replacing, by replacement of something new, is anchored to the very core of diagramming. The root verb of diagramming means not only something that is plotted, sketched out, or rendered into figures, but also indicates a crossing out or the erasure of figures. As a tool of thought, the activity of diagramming invites the fabulation of narrative. It is an abstract language where gestures of prehistory find a site for speculative definition. The diagram is not bound to the elaboration of an axiomatic argument, but as Gilles Deleuze suggests, can gaze into the future with pro-noia or foresight, constructing a reality that is yet to come, 
like the diagram of the panopticon and its foresight of modern techniques of power. Now, one could, of course, construct diagrams for anything or any future scenario. So the issue concerning the diagram is not merely that it has the capacity to gaze into the future, but how that projected future comes into existence. The temporality of affirmative speculation, as we may recall, is a recursive one, with feedback between the actual and the virtual, the future and the present, is because of this looping temporal structure where the intervention of affect and ideas is paramount, since they construct points of orientation. What I'm ultimately suggesting is that this navigable foresight, the pronoia, is driven or actualized by hindsight, or metanoia. Metanoia is the acquiring of an existential new light, of seeing the world in a different way. It is a lasting transformation of thought by way of sense event. When you've seen an artwork, read a passage of text, experienced an event from which you can never turn back, that is metanoia at work. It is a rupture in understanding of the semantic pillars bracing existent logic by way of knowledge or sense, like the epistemic turbulence of hyperstition. Metanoia lacerates and opens us towards the periphery of certainty, towards the edge of what is, ushering in an ethico-aesthetical orientation that forces pronoia into actuality. It inclines and prescribes the concrete movement of an abstract machine. The amalgamation of these qualities of hyperstition, of ab above all that hyperstition is a mode of engineering reality, finds expression in what Peter Wolfendale, following Kant, insist upon as positive freedom, that is the freedom to do something and not only freedom from something. Positive freedom is the power to describe and construct ideas that orient the affirmation of what ought to be done, what we do want, while collectively developing capacities to construct that very fictional world. Now, positive freedom isn't, isn't a type of right held up in any charter like the freedom of speech in many constitutions. Positive freedom is a laborious task of constructing commitments to new ideas and fictions of reality not yet real. These fictions are purely synthetic in the sense that they are not naturally given, but are a composite between an image or idea and an enactment of a future interior. These fictional inclinations operate as gravitational attractors for reorientation in navigating the place we ought to construct. Although the construction of footholds of orientation may sound like a bland, disp dispassionate task, it is wholly dependent on imagination. As the primary faculty through which we can exceed what is directly before us, imagination marks a moment of fertile alienation, the willful fabulation of alienation that separates us from what is towards the foreignness of what could be. The future, as I've been talking about it here under hyperstitional terms, is ultimately po posited as an affirmative force for alienation. Alienation in this light is not something to be overcome, but an abstract power of speculative labor oriented towards what does not yet exist in reality. In the face of daunting complexity, the future is tasked with the development of fictions of 
and for constructive alienation that can separate us from the situation of what is, orienting us conceptually and materially towards the alien place of what could be. If the future can be constituted by a recursive interplay between fiction and reality, there seems a pressing labor to exit paradigms of critical stagnation, generative only of a tragic present future, and exploit the power of interpolated fiction as a productive mode of constructing estrangement. So if you'll just bear with me for a couple more minutes, I'd like to take a jump and talk about art a little bit more now. So. So to conclude, uh, I'd like to take an abrupt sidestep of how this hyperstitional alienation interfaces with the current predicament of contemporary art. So when, I'm saying, uh, when I say the word contemporary art, I'm referring to the entire spectrum of production, dissemination, economy, and reception, rather than isolated exhibitions, artists, or artworks. So what contemporary art has come to signify today is what Suhail Malik has identified as a championing of indeterminacy. So art can be anything and anywhere. It has no definition. And this fact is falsely advocated as a paradigm of freedom. It is caught in a dream state of idealism insofar as it desires more social relevance and predominantly fails at fulfilling this fantasy. Contemporary art in this light operates in what Amanda Beach has described as a tragic condition whose motor consists of a narrow interpretation of the Duchampian paradigm, where anything can be art, but where we are compelled to deploy critical approaches to endlessly reform art towards an ever-expansive, albeit different, art. The arduous call she asks of us, and one that is pertinent here in a more profound elaboration, is the more profound elaboration of the Duchampian model. It is a challenge to construct new artistic paradigms altogether, necessitating the affirmation of an exit from our current modes of operation as a labor of alienation. Although us artists largely fail in our endeavor to impact social reality beyond a single subject, nor will we directly rewrite policy to transgress the injustices of our given social, social system, our practices of labor and production have become notably, notably prototypical, extending beyond the field of art, like engines, not cameras, of representation. Factors like the division of labor across the entire spectrum of life, with no distinction between leisure and work, processes of gentrification and price speculation, are not the sole culpability of art, but constitute real side effects of our modes of operation that we have partially bequeathed to the world. So in a perverse and inverse sense, the avant-garde wholly succeeded in merging art with life, confirming Joseph Boyce's infamous statement that in the future we'll all be artists. They just didn't intend the precarity side of the equation. While this sweeping conclusion admittedly reeks of cynicism we desperately need to drop, it serves to reflect a condition of generalized disavowal spoken of earlier that also pervades the field of contemporary art between what we say we do and what we really do. We attend critical talks, nod with bashful agreement as to our involvement within a so-called inescapable system, and then after confession, proceed through idealistic language as to the core goodness of our field. This problem of disavowal ends up forging a quasi-theological foundation of contemporary art based almost exclusively on faith and not on substance. 
Despite the realities, we believe in what we do and continue doing it the same way, by the same rules, even if those rules carry the illusion of the proliferation of difference, endlessly confirming what contemporary art already is. This sort of repetition serves to naturalize the given limits of contemporary art as if it is delineated by some supernatural power and petrifies it systemically, rendering it increasingly difficult to imagine and construct alternatives rather than apprehending it as it actually is contingent and subject to change. But enough of the bad news and the gloomy diagnosis. Seeing as art has been prototypical in at least partially ushering in models of labor, urban renewal, and abstract forms of value creation, to put these in the most sort of diplomatic terms possible, we can assert that art does possess a certain power beyond the arena it lays claim to, namely, namely the field of and for subjective and semantic interpretability. Second, the critical imperative endemic to our labor, the cornerstone of many of our art educations, has given us sets of tools to understand our complicity within what Benedict Singleton would call our trap of a given condition. And we can assert that this is the first step of surveying the terrain for a program of strategic hyperstitional alienation to take hold of. Critique has been a crucial device for allowing us to identify our complicity within a system and point to logical impasses of what is, yet it fails very short on the prognostic register of what we ought to do with these diagnoses. It is this collective behavior of shrugging off known complicities as an unfortunate byproduct of an otherwise ideal endeavor via the mechanism of critique that represents the constructively unimaginative terrain and ethical deficit of contemporary art today. With that in mind, I'd like to conclude with lingering questions that haunt my own activities within the system of contemporary art. When we evidentially do possess a type of power in modeling or influencing broader social processes, however indirect, can we or will we seize upon our prototypical capacities in conjoining this knowledge with a cognitive and material follow-through? How will we consciously seize the inherent fictiveness of our discipline towards a project of futural alienation, harnessing the potency of our complicity within the category we call art? Thank you. <laughs>